Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. It's, it's great to be back with you all after a couple weeks of being out. Um, my wife and I, uh, as well as a couple of friends, we were in New Zealand, and it was, it was an awesome and a refreshing couple of weeks. And then to come back and have you know, one of the first large uh, world events be uh, the shooting at two mosques in Christchurch, which is a city there in New Zealand, um, has, has really left me uh, grieving and with a heavy heart thinking about that act in specific, but also just uh, about the reality that those kinds of acts of brokenness, um, whether on a large scale or a small scale, break into our lives all the time. And it has real and drastic consequences and impacts on people, um, some more drastic than others, but our brokenness and our sin always intersects with another person and has impacts on other people's lives. And um, I thought this morning what, what, how I'd like for us to begin this portion of our service is just spending a moment in prayer um, for Christ Church and the victims of, and the families of those shootings, uh, but also over the grievous nature of sin and human brokenness in our world in general. So if you would join me in prayer. God, thank you for today. Lord, for the opportunity to gather together as a church and to declare together that Jesus is better, that he's better than our comfort, than our riches. He's better um, in all of our sorrows, Lord. Uh, God, to gather together as a church and uh, to declare both with our lips, but also with our hearts, all all hail King Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. God, we do that on this earth that is broken, and we do that in the tension of knowing that Christ rules and reigns over and above all things, God, that you are uh, sovereign and good in all that you do, and yet we see around us oftentimes just incredible, grieving pictures of sin and brokenness. God, we gather together here this morning looking forward to a day when Jesus will come back a second time and he will put a full and a final end to all of the sin and all of the brokenness that exists in our world. He'll put a full and a final end even to the possibility of brokenness and evil ever being present again, God. And we long for that day and looking forward to it, God, we pray, come Lord Jesus, would you come back, God, and put an end to the pain and the suffering that we see in the world all around us. God, I pray that as the church, this local church, but as the big C global church, God, that you would use us as a force for speaking out against the evils of sin that we see in the world around us, that to speak out against the darkness of violence and evil that we often see around us. God, I pray that you would use us, the church globally, Lord, all throughout the world to advance the realities of your kingdom here in this world, in the here and now. God, that we would work to overcome the realities of darkness and brokenness with the light and the love of Jesus Christ, that we would work to 
unleash kingdom realities in the world all around us, knowing that we cannot do that perfectly here in this broken world, God, but we can do it obediently in response to your word. God, I want to spend a a moment and lift up the families and the individuals who are affected by um, a devastating act of racism and evil in Christchurch, New Zealand. God, would you bring your grace and your mercy and your peace into the lives of the individuals who have been directly affected by that? God, would you bring your grace and your mercy and your peace to the people of Christchurch and of New Zealand? God, would the light of the gospel shine bright there? Lord, would the truth of Jesus and his work on the cross be proclaimed uh, in a country that has uh, experienced a kind of, of evil that we in America who are unfortunately familiar with those acts, God, that we would wish on no one else. God, I pray that the love of Christ, the light of the gospel, God, the movement of the church in response to and pushing back against the brokenness of our world, God, would be uh, evident from this day until the day that Jesus returns again. God, I pray that you would empower by your spirit each and every one of us as individuals to take part in obediently living out the truth of the gospel in a broken world and in obediently proclaiming the truth of the gospel to a world that needs to hear it. God, we're thankful for Christ. We look forward longingly to a day when not even a shadow of brokenness will exist for the rest of eternity. God, we look forward to gathering there in the light of the sun, there at the foot of the throne in heaven and worshiping for all of eternity in a place where there will be no pain and no tears, no sadness, God, where there will be no sin and no darkness and no brokenness, God. And as your church, we cry out to you, Lord, would you bring a taste of that here to this earth and in uh, in an increasing and in an intentional way, Lord, but also would you come soon, God, so that we can go and be with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to jump into a new series this morning, and so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Zephaniah and Haggai over the next 10 weeks or so. If you're trying to find that, and it's at the end of your Old Testament, it will actually be faster if you go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and flip backward than if you try to just open up in your Old Testament and work your way forward. If you just drop your Bible open, you're probably going to end up somewhere in Psalms, and you're going to have a long way to go to get to Zephaniah. And so instead, if you go to Matthew and work backward four little books, it might be like 15 pages, 20 pages total, you'll be at Zephaniah, and then Haggai is the next one. Um, as we've been, as I've been thinking about and getting ready for this series, and as our staff has been talking about it, the image that keeps coming into my mind as we finished Romans and jumped into Zephaniah is a scene from The Wizard of Oz, uh, where Dorothy and her companions have made it there to Oz, and they discover that all that they're seeing is just run by a little man behind a curtain. And he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? 
What I want to do this morning as we start this new series is actually pull back the curtain because we want you to see why it is the things that we're doing uh, and why it is that we make the decisions that we do. And so we spent 14 months recently in Romans, a New Testament epistle. Last year, uh, or actually in 2017, we spent a year doing the Bible initiative where we went through all the historical books of the Old Testament and then uh, through the vast majority of the New Testament. It's time for us to get into a new genre of scripture. We spent a long time in the New Testament over the last year, so we wanted to go to the Old Testament, and we recently did all the historical or the narrative books, so it made sense for us to go to a prophet. Uh, Specifically, we're going to begin a series here where we start to work our way through all of the minor prophets. There are 12 of them. We're not going to do them all just strung together. Instead, what we're going to do is as we... We're going to do 10 weeks here in Zephaniah and Haggai, and then we'll go and we'll do something else, and we'll touch some other parts of Scripture, and then we'll loop back into this series that we're calling Minor Prophets, Major Truth, and eventually, over some years probably, work our way through all 12 of these Minor Prophets. They're probably the most neglected and ignored books in your Bible. That's because they can be a little bit hard to understand. It's also because unless you've done like a reading plan that worked through the entire Bible beginning to end, you probably never woke up in the morning and thought, you know what I really need? Malachi. You probably never just had that thought to yourself. And so personally, in our own reading, we tend to neglect these minor prophets. It also unfortunately happens from people in my role in the upfront position. They're a little bit hard to teach and to preach through. The historical context is really important. They're poetic in nature, and so there's a lot of imagery that has to be unpacked in order to understand them really well. They tend to deal with a lot of kind of judgment-type statements, which, you know, I would rather preach happy things than sad things, and you would rather hear happy things than sad judgment things, but they're important. If we truly believe the words of 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness, then that has to include these 12 books that come at the end of our Old Testament in the same way that it would include the epistles in the New Testament or the gospels or any other segment of scripture. And so that's where we're going to go. We're going to jump into these. We're going to take them verse by verse, just like we do any other section of scripture. And my hope is that what we see is that minor prophets but they speak to us foundational, important truths about who God is, what he's done in Jesus Christ, and what that means for us in living in relationship with him today. Let me give some generals about minor prophets before we jump into the first verses of Zephaniah and Haggai. There are 12 minor prophets, 17 prophets in total, but five of them are designated as major, 12 of them are designated as minor, and the only difference in those distinctions is length. Major and minor is not a statement of importance or relevance. It's not a statement about the message that those prophets spoke. It's simply a designation of length. The major prophets are longer than the minor prophets. You could flip to any one of these 12 minor prophets and probably read the whole thing in 10, 15, 20 minutes. Some of them might take a little bit longer. Some of them would be shorter. Haggai's only two chapters. You can probably read it in about five minutes. What these minor prophet books contain are summaries of the messages that these individuals gave to the people of Israel. I say summaries because Zephaniah, for instance, showed up and he had more than, let's say, eight minutes worth of things to say to the Israelite people. What we have recorded 
are direct statements from them that summarize the fullness of the message that the Lord spoke through those individuals to his people. As I mentioned, they're found at the back of your Old Testament. It's usually easier to get yourself to a minor prophet by going to Matthew in the New Testament and then flipping backward rather than just flipping, you know, 1,000, 1,500 pages trying to find one of those, these minor prophets uh, beginning from the start of the Old Testament and working that direction. As is the case with all of the prophets, the minor prophets fit into the story of the Old Testament. What I mean by that is that there's a history that takes place in the Old Testament. We find it from Genesis all the way up through all the historical books of the Old Testament, which culminate uh, before you get to Psalms and Proverbs and the wisdom literature. And so these prophets slot back into certain places within that historical story. In the case of Zephaniah, if you wanted to read about what was happening in Israel when Zephaniah was present, you would go to 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. You can jot that down. If you wanted to read about what was happening historically in Israel during the time of the prophet Haggai, you would go to the book of Ezra. You could jot that down. Understanding the message that Zephaniah has and the message that Haggai has, uh, it's helpful to read about what was happening historically in 2 Kings and in the book of Ezra. These books are often poetic. We just finished Romans, which is a letter, and it's written more like an argument. The Gospels are written like biographies. The Old Testament histories are written uh, like historical accounts. Acts is kind of written like a novel. The minor prophets, when you just look at them on the page, they look more like Psalms than anything else. They don't necessarily sound like the book of Psalms, but that's how they look on the page. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of poetic elements that have to be really kind of parsed through in order to understand what it is that the prophet is saying. Certain segments of the minor prophets are more narrative in nature, but for the most part, they're poetic. The minor prophets have one general theme that shows up throughout all 12 of them, and that general theme is this, that there are just and devastating consequences for Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh. I use that word Yahweh intentionally. When you're reading your Old Testament and you see the word Lord spelled in all capital letters, usually it's a, a capital L and then smaller capital versions of O-R-D. That is the English translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh was Israel's covenant name for the Lord. They were his chosen people. He was to be their God. And Yahweh was the name that they called him. It was a special name for the Lord that his covenant people had for him. And there are staggering and fair consequences when Israel breaks that covenant relationship with him. The minor prophets talk all about those consequences. In Zephaniah, we see this perfect meshing together of the Lord's justice and the Lord's love. In the book of Haggai, we see that God sovereignly chooses to use humanity's acts of obedience and humanity's acts of disobedience in order to move forward his purpose and his plan in the world. Just and devastating consequences, and yet the Lord is fair and he is just, but he's also loving and gracious and merciful. Just and devastating consequences, and yet the Lord is using humanity's obedience and disobedience in order to move forward his plan and his purpose. As we work through Zephaniah and Haggai and the other minor prophets, we're always going to ask three questions on Sunday morning. Those three questions are as follows. Number one, what does this passage tell us about who God is? 
will always answer that. Number two, what does this passage tell us about Jesus and the gospel? We'll always answer that question. And then number three, how do we take this passage and apply it to our lives today? We might not always answer those questions in that order, but the answer to all three of them will take place. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to start by looking at Zephaniah 1.1 and Haggai 1.1. So if you'll follow along with me. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. If you flip two, three, four pages forward, depending on the font size in your Bible, you'll get to Haggai. This is the first verse. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That's how both of these books open. What does this tell us about who God is? That's where I want to start this morning, about who the Lord is. And the truth this morning is simple. The Lord speaks. I say this often uh, when we're talking about reading and understanding scripture, and that's don't miss the obvious. You don't have to be a a biblical scholar, you don't need a seminary degree in order to observe the obvious out of the texts that you read on any given day. And the obvious here is that the Lord speaks. It's right there at the beginning of Zephaniah and Haggai, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. God has been speaking since the beginning of time. In fact, it's one of the very first things that we see him do in Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let there be light. The Lord speaking is one of the very last things we see in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's like three verses from the very end of your Bible where we're told, he who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. The Lord speaks. That's the major truth to walk away with from just the first verse of Zephaniah and Haggai. But if we look a little bit harder, we can see that there's more about how it is that the Lord speaks. Because the Lord doesn't just speak, he speaks in real time. Both the beginning of Zephaniah and Haggai give us a distinction for when this took place. In Zephaniah, it was in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. In the book of Haggai, we're told that this happened on the first day of the sixth month. I mean, that is as specific as you can get. We'll do a deeper dive into the context of both of these books in future weeks, but let me give some very basics now. I already mentioned that you can read about the historical setting for Zephaniah by going to 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. How do I know that? I know that because that's when the Bible talks, talks to us about Josiah being king. We're told in Zephaniah 1.1 that this came about in the days of Josiah, the king of Judah. If you go to 2 Kings and find where Josiah was king, it's in 2 Kings 22 and 23. That's real time. That's the circumstance whereby the Lord spoke through the prophet Zephaniah. You can do the same thing in Haggai. I already mentioned that the historical setting of Haggai can be read about in the book of Ezra. How do I know that? Well, if you look at Haggai 1.1, we're told that the words of the, uh, the prophet Haggai were to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. And so you do a little work to figure out where it is that Zerubbabel was present in Israel's history, and it's in the book of Ezra, when the Israelites come back from exile. 
If you remember just back to Christmas when we went through the genealogy at the beginning of the book of Matthew, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel are both present there in the genealogy of Jesus recorded at the beginning of Matthew. But you can read about their time in the book of Ezra. The Lord speaks in real time. He also speaks to real people. Again, a little bit of observation. You can see this in both places. After telling us that the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, there's a list of names. The son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. The whole reason for that list of names is to link Zephaniah to Hezekiah, one of Judah's greatest kings. It's to show us that Zephaniah, this prophet, is the great-great-grandson of one of Judah's greatest kings, Hezekiah. Let me put that into modern terms. If you were the great-great-great, however many greats are necessary, grandson or granddaughter of Abraham Lincoln, it would come up in conversation sometimes. Yeah, my name's Tim. My grandpappy was the great emancipator, right? You would want people to know that. It not only roots you in history, but it, it links you to a definitive, real person. The reason that these are present, and in this case it's to Hezekiah, is because there's to be no doubt that Zephaniah was a real person who spoke a real message in Israel. It's not a fairy tale. This isn't made up. He's the great-great-grandson of one of the greatest kings to have ever lived. And then when you get over to Haggai, and we're connected to Zerubbabel and to Shealtiel, it's for the same reason. Linking Haggai and his message to a real person that Israelites would have known throughout history, and also that today we can go back and see, well, when was this person Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah? You can go back and look at that. This, these are real people speaking a real message. Let me draw two pastoral reflections here. The Lord speaks. He speaks in real time. He speaks to real people. The natural question is, well, what does he speak about? What is the Lord saying to us? Well, the Lord speaks about himself, about his son, and about all that is necessary for humanity to know him. And praise the Lord, that's the case. If the Lord did not speak and we did not have it preserved for us in his word, we would literally be without hope. The word of the Lord is the revelation of himself. And in that, our soul should find awe. We should be blown away by the glorious revelations that we get about who God is in his word. The Bible Scripture is God speaking primarily a revelation of himself to humanity. Why is that necessary? Because as humanity, we try really hard to relegate the God of the universe to a place of unimportance. And he wants us to see the glory and the reality of exactly who he is. All of Scripture is a testament to who he is and what his character is like, and it is glorious. Scripture from beginning to end is about that, and the minor prophets are no different. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord says, I am with you. That's a statement about who he is. Imagine being an Israelite person and reading that. He's with me. You don't have to imagine being an Israelite person. You can read that today. I am with you. A glorious reality about the character and the nature of who God is. The word of the Lord is his revelation about who we are and how we're broken and need a savior. And in that, our soul should find rest. Oftentimes, this comes to us in grave realities. In fact, that's what these minor prophets are full of. Weighty, heavy, important realities 
that we need to hear even though they're not comfortable, that we need to know because we need to know that we have a desperate need for a Savior. We need to hear that our sin is grievous to the Lord and that it comes with just and devastating consequences. We get those reminders all throughout Scripture, and the minor prophets are no different. Zephaniah chapter 1, the Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek me. Haggai 1.9, the Lord speaks this sort of uh, accusation against his people. My house, the temple, lies in ruins while each one of you is busy with your own house. We need to hear those grave realities. We also get an understanding of our need for the Savior, of our need for the Lord and our brokenness in generous rebukes, encouragements to turn from our sin. They're generous because they lead us to life. And we get them throughout Scripture. The minor prophets are no different. Zephaniah 2.3, the Lord says, Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Rebukes, encouragements for how we ought to live. And the word of the Lord is a revelation of the glory of His work in redeeming humanity. And in that, our soul should find rest. He speaks gracious reminders to us that show us the way to salvation, the glory of the Lord's work on our behalf. They make it clear what He's done to save us. They remind us, even as believers, of the goodness of God toward us. Zephaniah 3.15, we're told, The Lord has removed your punishment. Haggai 1.9, a different part of that verse, the Lord says, I will provide peace in this place. Those are gracious reminders. A second sort of pastoral reflection here. The truth is that the Lord speaks. The good news for us today is that he speaks today. He still speaks now. The nature of his speaking is the same. It's to real people in real time. The message of his speaking is the same. It's everything we need to know about him and his son in order to know him and love him and worship him and glorify him. That is a major truth that we get from just one verse of these minor prophets. What does that mean for us today? How do we take that and apply it to our lives in a meaningful way today? Well, the first way is this. We've got to make space to listen. And that means we need to be intentional about silence. We live in a time that's dominated by information overload. From social media and blog posts, online articles, a 24-hour news cycle, phones that are constantly giving us notifications about text messages or direct messages. And even if you keep the volume on all those things very, very low, the weight of them is incredibly loud. So loud that it becomes entirely distracting. It's no wonder why so many people think it's hard to hear anything from the Lord. The issue is not that he doesn't speak. The issue is that you can't hear. And you can't hear because the rest of the world around us is too loud. There's just too much noise. A constant practice in the life of Christ was that he would withdraw from the crowds of people in order to spend time with the Father. He created space. And it's absurd to think that if the Son of God would need to do this, that we don't need to. Here's how we're told that the voice of the Lord was heard by the prophet Elijah. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19. The Lord said, Go out and stand on a mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. 
When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. If we're going to hear from the Lord who speaks to real people in real time everything that we need to know about him and speaks to us today, we're going to have to create the space to listen. And that means we're going to have to create silence in our lives, which is an effort. It's something we'll have to do intentionally. We not only need to make space to listen, we need to go to the right place to listen. And that place is the Bible. The Bible is so common to us in America that we're often guilty of having little or no reverence for us. It kind of sits around like almost any other book, somewhere on a shelf next to books written by human authors, giving human thoughts on human events or human stories. And right there next to it is a book authored by the Lord with all the authority of the God of the universe speaking the greatest truths that every human heart needs to know, and we kind of treat it like we would treat a book by someone else. We've got to go to the right place to listen. We need to go there frequently. We need to go there intentionally. We need to go there slowly. We need to go there and be in awe of the fact that you can hear directly from the Lord in that place. He has spoken in his word and he will speak to your heart. We need to go there and read and then make space to be silent. We need to go there and read and make space to allow the Lord to illuminate to us what it is that he wants to say. So often we come into the presence of the Lord and we want direction. Which college should I go to? Should I break up with this person? Should I pursue that new job opportunity? Should our family move? And we think that, you know, if we're going to hear personally and powerfully from the Lord, then his voice is going to boom from heaven and he's going to say, go to the University of Kansas. If you hear that, it wasn't the Lord. I can assure you. We think we're going to get into the presence of God and he's going to boom from heaven in that relationship. Let me tell you how the Lord most normally speaks. He speaks in illumination rather than direction, most commonly. That means you get into the presence of the Lord and you're trying to figure out whether or not you should continue in that relationship. And you read something and you're waiting for the Lord to say yes or no about this relationship. And all the while, he's gently whispering something to your heart about the physical nature of that relationship. The sin it's bringing into your life. What it's doing to your soul. And you're so busy waiting for the Lord to give you the exact direction of the thing that you should do that you miss the illumination that's supposed to guide your steps. You're so interested in the Lord telling you whether or not you should take that promotion that you miss him illuminating to your heart what it might be possible that your tie to material things would continue to do to you if you just had more money. He speaks in illumination. And when he illuminates, oftentimes it means we need to repent. Oftentimes it means that there's something we need to be obedient to. It means that there might be a relationship that we need to reconcile or a step of faith that he wants us to take in response to his word. We want the Lord to speak personally and powerfully and we think that that means it's got to be some grandiose voice that comes to us like a fire or an earthquake or a great wind and is going to make everything clear for us and all the while he's illuminating the truth of his word in our heart and it's incredibly personal and it's incredibly powerful and the truth of it has already been spoken. Know the place to listen. It's in his word and then create some silence so that you can hear the gentle whisper. The Lord speaks. He speaks today to real people in real time, 
in your real circumstances. He wants to speak to you, but you've got to know the place to go to hear, and you've got to create the space in order to hear it. Let me end with this. What does Zephaniah 1.1 and Haggai 1.1 tell us about Jesus in the gospel? While we see the Lord speak in the minor prophets, we are to be reminded that he's not only spoken audibly through individuals like his prophets, but he's also spoken visibly, and he's done it through his son. That's because Jesus is the word. Jesus is the internal embodiment of the word. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We're also told in the first chapter of Hebrews that long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of his nature. If the word of God is the revelation of God and Jesus is the exact expression of God's nature, then he is the eternal embodiment of the word of God. You want to hear what the word has to say? You want to hear what the Lord speaks? Look at the person of Jesus. He embodies the word eternally. Jesus is also the living upholder of the word. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. He upholds the word. Everything that the scripture commanded, Jesus upheld perfectly. Every character of God that scripture describes, Jesus upholds perfectly. Every jot and tittle, that's the literal translation there of Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus upholds. He did not come to abolish any piece of it, but to uphold every last dot on the page. And then last, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the word. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, Romans 8 says, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Why? In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled. Perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord speaks. He speaks to real people in real time. He speaks today. He can speak to you, illuminating the truth of his word in your heart. And he has spoken visibly in the person of his son, who eternally embodies the word, living, upheld the word, and perfectly fulfilled the word on our behalf. That is major truth from a couple of minor prophets. Step one in a relationship with the Lord is hearing that he has spoken and seeing that word in the life of his son. Glorious revelations about the truth of who God is. Grave realities and generous rebukes about our sin and brokenness and need for a Savior. And a gracious reminder that He has given us everything we need to be saved in the person of Jesus Christ, who embodied, upheld, and fulfilled everything that the Lord has ever spoken. And it's available to you to be received by faith. You can do that today. You can begin a relationship with the Lord in a lifetime of hearing Him speak to you by placing your faith in Jesus Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sin, receiving His grace, and stepping into a right relationship with Him. I want to offer a challenge this morning. Make two commitments over the course of this week. The first one, every day, go to the place where you know you can hear from the Lord. That's His Word. Make time. Read the Bible. 
Read it with a listening heart, and listening ears, with a listening mind, with a heart that's receptive to what the Lord might be illuminating to you. And then, commitment number two, make some space to hear. Total silence. I'm going to throw a number out here, and when I say it, it's going to sound small, but then when you try it, it's going to feel like an eternity. Make five minutes of total silence every day after you read the Word. Complete silence. That means you've got to turn off silence, or you've got to silence distractions as well. Get the phone in a different room. If you're a parent who has a hard time even getting time in the Word, you might need to make your time of silence like five minutes during your lunch break at work. You read the Word in the morning. You heard what the Lord had to say. Maybe you jotted down in your phone or on a note card a few notes of some things that you wanted to reflect on. And then when you found some time to carve out some silence, you capitalized on it and allowed the Lord to speak. You gave Him space to illuminate His truth in your heart. And then you respond in obedient faith to what the Lord has to say. He speaks. He speaks in real time to real people. He speaks today and you can hear Him. You can hear Him, but you've got to be intentional. Go to where He's spoken and create silence so that you can hear Him. Amen? Let me pray and then we'll go. God, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus who is the embodiment, the fulfillment, Lord, who is the upholding of your word. Thank you for the truth that you still speak today and you want to speak to each and every one of us, Lord. Would we make it possible to hear you? God, would we go to your word and allow you to speak personally and powerfully through it to our hearts, illuminating to us what it looks like to move forward in our relationship with you? And would you help us create some silence, God, so that we can hear, to eliminate the distractions, Lord, so that we might hear you speak to us, God. And then would your Holy Spirit empower us to be obedient, Lord, empower us to be faithful to what it is you illuminate within our hearts, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.